Good morning. Uh, welcome, welcome Midtown uh, viewers at home who are uh, joining us uh, live uh, or recorded later. Um, do you want to make uh, a follow-up announcement? Daryl kind of mentioned it, but our, our film crew that makes these live services happen for all of our congregations, for all of their live stream services uh, every week, they're in need of some more help uh, to people that make this service happen and, and, and to give their crew some, some added um, manpower. It is a paying gig, um, and so if you will find Weatherly, even if you're at home, um, find Weatherly, you can email her, you can find her after a service and say, hey, I'd love to help. Uh, we would love for some 12 Southers like to make up the 12 South crew. We don't want these other people from anywhere else helping out around here, okay? Uh, no, we would love for our people to help make this happen and we'll pay you to do it. Win-win. Um, anyway, we are uh, beginning a 12-week series this morning on the book of Philippians. Uh, and Daryl mentioned to you if, you, if you were here for the call to worship and the announcements, on the way out, I hope you grab one of these Philippians daily office, daily devotional books that will walk you through the book of Philippians starting tomorrow for the next eight weeks, every day. It's just a little like three-minute uh, meditation on a section of scripture in Philippians. The pastors have written this devotional and it will, it will guide you through the book. Uh, just as a caveat though, as you begin your study of Philippians, I hope you do it. Do it with your small group. Do it with your um, friends. Uh, do it together. You'll notice that the eight-week uh, Philippian uh, study guide devotional book uh, is four weeks shorter than our series, uh, and yes, we can count, okay? I just need you to know that we, did, that was not, uh, we were not unaware that the devotional is shorter than the sermon series, um, but it's a win-win, because you just, after you finish the devotional book, you'll get four more weeks of, of sermons on it. So grab those books, uh, and, and please join us. If you don't get a book or don't want to do it in book form, there is a, um, uh, an online way to join in as well on our Instagram page and our social media and our website. We can even email you every day if you sign up for it online. Um, anyway, um, let me read for us our passage as we begin this book, our 12-week study of the book. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and through the first 11 verses. So this shall be on the screen, or you can uh, look in your Bibles and read along. Verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, that's who's writing the book, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you, all part, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's the word of the Lord. So as we study this book, if you study any book of the Bible and you read it multiple times and even just kind of let it marinate um, in, in its completed form, um, you'll start to develop or understand the themes that are developed in any given book uh, that that sure, there are lots of side roads and lots of, of branches, but you kind of find like a main 
a main root, a, a main trunk of the tree of going, hey, all right, this is, is kind of what the book is about. It's kind of the main idea. Um, and so scholars for, for years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, as they've studied this book, uh, have repeatedly noted uh, the theme of, of Philippians uh, is joy. It's been called Paul's epistle of joy. It's, it's kind of the theme all throughout. He is taking the reader uh, then and now uh, on a journey to joy and into joy and through joy and understanding what joy is ours because of Jesus. The problem with that, though, is that the path that Paul lays out for joy, the path that he has for the reader and the listener to get more joy doesn't go the way that one might think. In order for the Philippians, in order for us to find joy, we will have to lose before we will win. There will be much loss, there will be much heartache, there will be much pain before we arrive at that place that we all long for called joy. So we're calling our series in our study of Philippians, Winning by Losing, the Philippian Path to Joy, um, that, that we, we believe, um, and, and the Bible teaches, that what Philippians says is that the path to joy isn't going to come the way that you think. The path to joy is going to be a little bit upside down. The path to joy is actually going to come by losing things before you gain something. And so the theme verse, you know, is like Paul was a great um, high schooler who wrote a great uh, five-paragraph essay or whatever it is that the kids write these days, but he had a great thesis verse. He had a great thesis that captures the main theme of this entire book. And this thesis, this theme verse, is, is the set of lenses that we're going to use to look at every passage in the book. Every passage needs to be funneled through our theme verse for the series. And our theme verse comes from chapter 3. You'll hear this verse a lot in the series. It is what is going on in the book. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 says this. It's what the whole book is about. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I love that verse because it gives the Christian great freedom to use swear words because that last sentence right there I consider them garbage. That word rubbish, that word is literally like excrement. We have a word for that. Paul was free enough to use it in scripture. I'm not free enough to use it in the pulpit, but Paul just said it, okay? So rightly used. If you're talking about Jesus things that matter, you can use it. But here's, here's what he said. Everything in my life I've realized was a path to losing something in order that I might gain something. And so everything, everything we look at in this, in this series, every week we will look at through this lens, what is Paul leading us to lose that we might gain something more on our path to joy? And it's not that um, when we come through the path that Paul lays out for joy that we get more of Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you already have all of Jesus. It's like Lucy in the Narnia tales when she sees Aslan after multiple trips into Narnia. She comes to Aslan and she says, you're bigger than you used to be, and he says, I'm not bigger. But as you've grown up, you've seen me as bigger now. The, the more you grow, the bigger you will see me. It's not that when we lose things, we get more of Jesus, it's that when we lose things, we see Jesus was bigger than we ever thought he was. This path to joy, this upside down path to joy in the kingdom of God doesn't come by adding or winning at new areas of growth. It is not a spiritual ladder that you add the right things and you treadmill yourself enough and you figure out how to win at Christianity. 
And then when you figure out how to win and do things right and do things more, then you get the prize of joy that was only for the elite and only for the superstars. No, in Christianity, joy comes by losing and dying. We gain the surpassing joy. It's what Paul says in our theme verse. He gains the surpassing joy of gaining the one thing that he realized he only ever needed, Jesus. So the things that we thought we needed, we lose the things we thought we needed, the things that we have death grips on, our comfort, our money, our vision of the good life. We lose all of those things. And Paul's gonna lead us. Here's what you have to lose now. Here's what you have to lose now for the sake of gaining what we really need. And so this paradigm shift, winning by losing on our path to joy, is what we will look at each week. And each week we'll look at a different thing that Paul is calling us to lose in order that we might gain more and a more and a more beautiful picture of who Jesus is. So that's our series intro. Now let's do a little bit of context for the book of Philippians that will help us unpack what's going on in our passage as we look at this paradigm shift of winning by losing. Context for the book of Philippians. What was going on in Philippi? You can read all about it in Acts chapter 16. It's where Paul plants the church in Philippi. Crazy story. Actually, LOL worthy. I, I literally laughed out loud in my office. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I had forgotten, like, this is how the church at Philippi gets started, gets planted. Go read it in Acts chapter 16. I'll give you, I'll give you a brief overview, but go read it. It's, it's crazy. Paul, not ironically, but providentially, remember we just studied the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul leaves Thessalonica, remember he gets run out of town, which means he's in the area of Macedonia in northern Greece. He leaves Thessalonians, Thessalonica, in the very beginning of Acts chapter 16, and he's headed, and he's asking the Holy Spirit, show me where you want me to go next. Where do you want me to make my next church plant? Where do you want me to go share the gospel next? Should we go to Asia Minor? Should we go to these little villages? And the Spirit keeps kind of, nope, don't, don't, nope, don't go there. I'm, I'm, I'm aiming you somewhere. And they land at this major city known as Philippi, another major city up in Macedonia. And they go to this prayer meeting down at the river of Jewish women. There's a, there's a weekly prayer gathering uh, at, the, at the river of these Jewish women. Paul goes there. It's where the Spirit leads him, him and his, his crew. It's him and Luke and, and Timothy, and there's all these people in there. Okay, so we're at the river, and he just starts preaching the gospel of the Messiah of King Jesus to these Jewish women who are praying. And they're listening. Okay, who's this crazy guy that came down to the river? Okay, one of the women converts. Her name was Lydia, and she was loaded. She was a very rich silk tradeswoman. She sold purple silk and she had done very well for herself. So she's this kind of upper elite woman who had made all kinds of money. Lydia converts and she's going, I'm all in with this Jesus the Messiah guy. Come back to my house, Paul and your team. And I wanna feed you guys. I wanna introduce you to my family. On their way to her house, there's a slave girl who had been trafficked, literally, not sex trafficked, but trafficked for the sake of her spirit of divination in order to be a fortune teller. So you could come and buy an hour with this woman, this little teenage girl, and she could tell you your future. And so they're walking by this girl, this slave girl, and she starts yelling out at Paul and his crew, and she goes, hey everybody, these people believe in the Lord, the God of Israel, these people are from the Lord. And she's just yelling at him and yelling at him. And Paul, literally it says this in Acts 16, Paul got annoyed with her. It says Paul was like, God, we just get this woman to shut her mouth like I'm tired of hearing her yell while we're walking by and so he goes over to her after he's annoyed by her and he casts the demon out of her not because he loved her because he was annoyed by her and so he he goes over and he casts the demon out and she kind of comes to her senses and she goes who are you and what do you know and, and he tells her about Jesus and she converts so now we've got two converts that could not be more different in the town of Philippi 
rich silk trading Lydia and former human traffic little slave girl, teenage girl who was a former fortune teller. But when her bosses find out that she's been converted and no longer has the spirit of divination to tell the future, they throw this Paul dude and his crew in jail. So now Paul's in jail. Two new converts fresh outside, and now Paul and his crew are in jail. They start singing hymns and psalms in the middle of the night. And there's an earthquake in Philippi, and the walls of the jail come crumbling down, and all the shackles of the prisoners get get loosened, and they're all about to go free. And the Philippian jailer comes up and he sees what's happened. He's about to lose his job and his life. He takes his sword out and he's about to kill himself. And Paul goes, no, 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 don't kill yourself. No one's going anywhere. And he goes, what are you talking about? He goes, we're free free men already. We don't need to leave. And so the Philippian jailer is going, who are you? You have a chance to leave, leave jail and leave prison and you're sticking around. And Paul shares the gospel with him. And he converts. So now, here we go. This is your church at Philippi. This is, this is who Paul starts the church with at Philippi. Rich Lydia, purple silk trading woman, slave girl, fortune teller girl, teenage girl, and Philippian jailer. Okay, so I don't know how many church planning fantasy drafts you've done. Uh, it's all the rave in seminary, if you want to, you know. Um, <laughs> it's not. Please don't think that that's what we do in seminary. Um, that's not anybody's MVP list. The people could not be more, be more different. The people could not have less in common. The people, I mean, uh, if you want to talk about Lydia, okay, maybe she was like a first century influencer. You know, she had a lot of money. But like, th- this is not like, you don't, Paul wasn't going to Philippian, the, the, the town of Philippi, and going, man, I got to have, I got to have all these spiritual leaders and all these religious leaders and all these social people of, of, of wealth and influence and all that kind of stuff. I got to go get the, the people. Look at who he's got. That's how this church starts, these three people. That's the core group, church planning team. Not even talking about all the cultural walls that this church planning team would have to come and hop over. Not only all the socioeconomic walls that would have been between these people, but it would have been very easy to think, looking at this church plant team of these three people, what in the world is God thinking that these are his first three at Philippi? So Paul then goes to the Philippian jailer house, converts his whole family. Uh, Lydia and her family, they come to faith. So he's got this little, you know, growing church, local church in Philippi. And then the people in the town, they have to come and apologize to Paul because he, you know, like we shouldn't have ever thrown you in jail. You didn't actually do anything illegal, but, but please leave. Like, you know, you've, you've, you've caused a lot of problems. So he leaves. That's how Paul leaves these people, this church in Philippi, Some people think he maybe had come back to Philippi maybe one other time, not sure. But you're looking at this ragtag group of what is going on in in, in Philippi and and who would want this to be their church plant team? Who would want this to be the people that that God is building his church around in this major town of Philippi? But Paul's not thinking that way. Paul loves these people. Paul's ecstatic about these people. He's nearly obsessed with these people. Listen to the language, knowing the context, which you could go get on your own. You don't need a seminary degree to get that context. That's all in in Acts chapter 16. Knowing that context and the craziness of it, listen to the language Paul uses as he opens up this letter to them, starting in verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You, Philippian church, make my prayer, every time I pray about you, 
Every time I pray, I'm thinking about you. You make my prayer a prayer of joy because of your partnership in the gospel with me. I am ecstatic when the Lord brings you to mind while I'm praying because when I think of you, I'm immediately caught up in joy when I think about you because of your partnership in the gospel with me. That word partnership right there is the Greek word koinonia. You've maybe heard of it. It's a Greek word that literally just connotates close relationships involving mutual interests. Like any relationship could have been a koinonia relationship. Any relationship could have had koinonia in it. It's, it's business relationships, there's a shared interest. It's family relationships, there's a shared interest. It's country koinonia, citizenship koinonia. You own property with somebody, you have a shared interest. And so there were all these places in the, the ancient Greek world, ancient Roman world that had koinonia in them. Koinonia was not this biblical term, it's just the idea that means we've got a shared interest. Aristotle, 300 years before Paul, said all friendship involves koinonia. Just, it's like we like the same movies, we go to the same you know, synagogue, we, we like hanging out with people and we like the same jokes, we like the same food. We have koinonia together. But Paul uses this word and he's totally taking the people who are reading this to a deeper understanding of that word. Because do you remember the church plant team? They had zero koinonia before Paul found them or before Jesus found them through Paul. They had nothing in common. They weren't hanging out before Paul came to, to Philippi. They were a people who had no, no koinonia at all. And Paul is now taking this Greek cultural term koinonia and saying, you guys have the ability, you guys have the, the possibility of a stronger koinonia than anybody in your town. And it has nothing to do with the places you like to go, with the activities you like to do, with the food you like to eat. It has nothing to do with any of the surface level things that everybody else uses for their koinonia and the shared mutual interest. It has to do with something that goes way deeper than that. And God has done something for you guys. Look at your church plant team. You guys would have no interest in each other if if it were not for Jesus. And now you have a, a common interest, a common koinonia that's so deep. It goes so deep. It doesn't even matter what your interests up here are. You have the ability to be tighter and last longer together and be a thing that never leaves each other, a partnership because of the person of Jesus and the gospel that brought you guys together. And then he says, and because God's done that in you guys, he's done it with us too, like I'm partnered with you. You guys are my people, this bond, this connection. I can't get separated from you and I'm not even there. But I feel this partnership with you in my prayer, like God, those are are my people, it's like, do you, ever, do you have someone like from your childhood or like an old friend or a, a summer camp friend that like, we don't even live in the same place, but something brought us together even the season we were in, the season of pain or the season of loneliness, and we connected in such a way that even if we're across the country or across the world, and I don't ever get to see them, when I'm with them, I feel connected to them, right? That's what Paul's saying. We've got a partnership, we've got a koinonia, and it can't be touched because the thing that connects us is never changing. This is partially what made the gospel so explosive in the first century was because it hopped over racial lines and cultural lines and economic lines and people were going, why are those people together? Why do those people even care about each other? It's because they had something that connected them that wasn't just, oh wow, they, they, they like to hang out in the same part of town or they like the same sports teams or they go to the same coliseum together, right? Like they, they just, they had something that was so much deeper than that. So Paul says to them, This gospel has bound us together. This bond of the gospel, this partnership, when I think of you, I think of joy. But look not only at Paul's deep joy in their shared partnership, 
Look, look at how deep and intimate his language to them is about how deep his love goes for them. Look at verse eight. We could have picked apart almost any verse of this opening um, welcome from Paul, but look at verse eight. I think it sticks out the most in verse eight. He says, for God is my witness. Only time he says that in the New Testament, by the way. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So I started wondering, why did Paul say, for I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus? Why didn't he say, I yearn for you with all the love of Christ Jesus or all the um, care of Christ Jesus or all the phileo, all the brotherly love of Christ Jesus? Like we're, we're brothers and sisters, like we're a family. Why did he choose that word I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Well, that, that word, that Greek word, and even the English translation, affected, uh, uh, affection, it speaks to this deep place that, that is, is kind of rare for us, but I, I trust that, that many of us have had at least a couple of relationships that feel like this. It speaks to this place in us that has a deep love for someone because you have been affected by them. You have an affection for them because they have affected you. They've affected you in such a way that you can't help but move towards them. They've affected you in such a way that you can't help but want to be with them. They affect you in such a way that you can't help but love them. Like, it's kind of like the romantic phase of like a dating relationship. Like when you just, it's like, you could do no wrong. Like everything about you is just the greatest thing in the whole world and I don't even have to, it's like this involuntary, like I just, I, I don't even know, I just, I just wanna be with you. Like I just, there's just this, this, there's this connection. You affect me. In fact, another place in the New Testament that Paul uses this word, he uses this word and, he, and it's translated in the English, my very heart. It's the same word they use here, this affection. It's, it's actually translated literally like my very heart. Like there's a part of my heart that got so intertwined with a part of your heart that now I can't even talk about my heart without talking about your heart because it's like one and the same. That there's this deep level of interconnectedness where you've been affected by somebody. It's the people in your life that get this, you really, really, really want to show empathy towards. Because empathy is a virtue and we all need practice at it and we need to grow and mature in our ability to show empathy to everybody. But it's the people in your life that it's not hard to want to show empathy towards. Like you want to know what life is like in their shoes. You really want to know what their pain is like. You really want to know what their passions are for. Like I just, I want to be so close to you. I want to be so interconnected with you that I can't talk about my heart without talking about your heart. These are the people that you don't feel bogged down to spend time with, people that you don't mind serving, it doesn't feel like it costs you anything, the people that you want to dote on because they're literally a part of your heart. Movie reference that came to mind this week, I was gonna show it, but probably inappropriate, was old, I mean it's 20 years old, John Q, Denzel Washington, his son needs a heart transplant, he can't find a, 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 you know, a heart that will, that will work so he, holds the emergency room hostage, not suggesting that, but he's gonna get a heart for his son. And about two thirds of the way through the movie, there's no, there's no matching heart to be put in his son, his son's gonna die. And so he tells the doctor in this hostage situation, like, I'm going to kill myself, and I want you to take my heart out of me and put it in him. And they go, no, too many risks, too many factors, and he goes, you're not understanding me. 
I want you to take my heart and put it in his. And they go, yeah, but it might not fit and maybe it's not the right blood tissue. And he goes, we've run all those tests. My heart fits in his expanded chest cavity and I'm going to die so that he can live because he is my heart. And so I want him to have my heart. That's the word affection right there. That's what, what Paul says he has for these people. So understanding a little bit of the context, the church plant team, and then kind of one step deeper, the partnership in the gospel that koinonias them together at, a, at the deepest possible level. And then you go into part saying, Paul saying, I have such a deep love for you, I can't even talk about my heart without talking about your heart. Okay, we're understanding all of that. And then here's, here's how we're connecting this. Here's how we go on the journey of the theme of the book. How is it winning by losing? What is Paul saying, what is Paul experiencing that we have to lose in order to gain something? Here's what I want to ask you. Imagine Paul, where he is. How he feels about this group of people. We just explored it for 10 minutes. Imagine those people, your kids, your significant others, your favorite people, your roommates, like your, your people, right? Like your, your people, your parents maybe. Do you think you would have an idea of how that relationship should go in your life? Do you think you would have an idea or you do have an idea of how that partnership should play out in your life? And not even talking about like do you have an idea or like expectations, yeah. Do you think subconsciously when you and I think about those people that we have that kind of love for, that we think about in that way, do you think we also assume that Jesus has the same idea that we have for that relationship? Like come on, Jesus. Can you imagine Paul, like these are my people. These are the ones I love. I can't even talk about my heart without talking about their heart. And we're partners in the gospel. We're koinonia. We're, we're breaking down barriers in Philippi. Like this is, this is it, Jesus. Surely you want the same thing for this relationship that I want for this thing, right? Don't we have the same idea of how this should go, Jesus? There's just one problem with that for Paul. One thing I haven't told you about the context of this letter Read with me again verse seven and you'll hear the, the, the theme we've already talked about but listen for one key word for context of what's going on in Paul's life. Verse seven says this, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. I love you, I'm obsessed with you, can't wait to be with you because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Where's Paul writing this letter from? Paul's in jail. Paul's in prison. And he's pinning this letter to them about his deep love for them and the bond that he has for them and the affection between them. He's writing it to them from a jail cell. Now, use your redeemed imagination to go to that jail cell where Paul is writing that from with the deep love, the deep connection, the affection, the koinonia with these people that he's obsessed with and he's behind bars, meaning he has no idea how this relationship is gonna play out. In fact, most scholars think Paul was in jail several times, but the overwhelming amount of evidence that I don't have time to go into, but it is there, it's it's more than probably likely that Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter, which means, if you know anything about the life of Paul, Paul is about to die. Paul's about to face his execution 
Paul doesn't know if he's going to make it out of this jail cell. Paul has no idea how this relationship is going to play out. So here's what Paul has had to lose as he writes this letter. Remember, winning by losing, the path to joy in Philippians. Here's what Paul has had to lose in his jail cell as he writes this letter. Here's what he's letting go of. Here's the death grip going, okay, 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 I'll let it go. I'll lose it. He's had to lose his idea of how his life should go. He's had to lose his idea of how his life should go. He's saying, I love these people. From the deepest place in me, I have a partnership with them, I have a bond with them, I yearn to be with them. Doesn't God want that for me too? Aren't those great things? Wouldn't God want me to be able to go and see them again? Wouldn't God want me to be able to visit this church, this crazy church plant that I love and I'd give my life for? Can I go hug them again, share a meal with them? I can't even like text them or FaceTime them. Like I, This is the only correspondence I have. Doesn't God want me to be able to go see them? Wouldn't God, if he's given me this desire, if he's got this yearning, if he gave me this yearning, why would he not let me out to go see them again? But he doesn't know if he'll ever see them again. He wants to. You'll see if you study the book in this, in this devotional and come, come to our sermon series. He says many times, I, want, I, want to come, I really want to come see you. I, like, I really, really want to be with you. But he's in jail he doesn't know what's gonna happen. So I want you to imagine Paul in this jail cell writing this letter to his dearly beloved friends that have affected him, having to, in real time, lose his idea of how this relationship will play out, of how his life should be going. Do you know the pain of that? Do you know the pain of not having your life go the way that you thought it should go. I know that some of you have lived that. But I also know that even if you haven't lived that in excruciating ways yet, you've lived that in your mind. You've built your life to try to never experience that. Do you know the shattered dreams pain? This was what I thought would happen. This is where I thought I would be by now. This is how I thought my life would feel by now. This is, this is not where I'm at, is not where I thought I would be. Do you know the pain of losing your idea of how your life should go? Paul does. Paul does. So if Paul's leading us to lose that, what did he gain? And what would we gain if we lost the same thing? Like Remember, winning by losing. What, what, what deeper element of joy do we get if we lose our idea of how our life should go? Paul gains a present rest that can only come from an unabandoned future. Paul gains a present rest that can only come from an unabandoned future future. Look with me again at verse 6. Verse 6 is the main verse of our little section. Look at what he says. Knowing all the context. Will you throw this back up there? This is probably helpful to see it and hear it for our visual learners and our auditory ones. Verse 6. 
And I am sure of this, present rest, present confidence, present contentment. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, this is perhaps one of the most well-known New Testament verses in certain biblical circles, certainly off-quoted, sometimes out of context, but still a beautiful, precious verse. But here's what I wanna lead into as we, as we close this out. This verse takes on a deeper meaning, takes on a deeper context, takes on a deeper beauty if we understand the context that Paul wrote it in. It's not meant just to be plucked out of context, although it still works. <laughs> but it's, it actually has a deeper comfort if we understand what's going on in Paul and in, in his life in the jail cell and the people that he loves, they would say this. Remember, he is in prison writing to these beloved friends that he can't be with, and this is what he just told them. His confidence, which is another word for rest, his confidence comes not from knowing how the future will play out, but from knowing the one that will never leave them as they walk into the future. His rest, his confidence comes not from knowing how the future will play out, but from knowing the one that will never leave them as they walk into the future. That's what he just said to them. I know that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let me just do a little bit of logical connection for you. God cannot promise to finish what he starts if he also doesn't walk with you in between. And if he also doesn't sovereignly ordain all the steps in between the start and the finish. He doesn't start it and then say, man, I really hope this works out. When God says, I started it in you and I promised to finish it in you, that means he has to plan literally every step between the start and the finish. It's not a roll of the dice. And so when Paul says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the end of time, here's what he's saying, God's never gonna leave you. He can't let you go. If he's promised to finish what he started, he will not be able to leave you. So Paul knows the survival of this church that he adores does not depend on his love for them or their initiative or their willpower or his strength or their endurance. What he just said is that God started the work of the church in Philippi and I know God will complete the work of the church in Philippi. It's like a parent, Paul is, letting go of their growing children. Now, I only have an eight and a half year old, so I've only had to live this in small ways, but I've walked with many people who have lived in this pain. The pain of letting their growing adult children live into the consequences and the messes they make of their life. The pain of parents having to let themselves feel the excruciating horror of knowing they can't always be there for their kids the way they wish they could. The pain of parents knowing I used to be the primary influence in their life and I'm not anymore. And Paul, like a good father in the faith, is saying that to these children of his at Philippi. I may not always be here for you like I wanna be, but I'm standing in the present tense, like in my jail cell, I'm resting on the confidence of the one that brought you into this family knowing he will never treat you like an orphan. 
that even though I can't be your father the way that I want to be, he will always be. The one that started you, the one that adopted you, will not leave you as an orphan. Verse six is the thing that allows Paul to see all the ways he wishes that this call on his life would have gone, the ideas that he had for this church plan, how they should go, and it lets him set it down. It lets him lose it. It lets him open his hands. And you may say, man, that's great for Paul. I'm so happy for Paul, 2,000 years in the future. I'm so happy that he got to experience that in his jail cell. I'm so happy that he's this church planner that really missed these people across the Mediterranean and now he's okay to go die in Rome because he knew verse six was true. But I'm not a church planner. I'm just a mom. Or I'm just a struggling young professional or I'm just a divorced person what in the world could verse six say to me? It says it to a church planner, great, the church is gonna be okay. What does verse six actually have to say to me? What does it have to do with me? And this is what I'm trying to say, that when you understand what Paul, the gospel balm that Paul just dropped in verse six in its context, it actually sinks to the bottom of the lake for us. In its context, here's what verse six says to you. Even if the world that you wish would go a certain way takes a turn you never wished it would, Jesus does not know how to abandon you. He doesn't know how. It's been said before that for Jesus to let you go would be a cosmic impossibility. Like the universe would cease to exist. That's what God says over and over in the Old Testament. The sun will stop rising before I'm unfaithful to you. Jesus doesn't know how to abandon you. He's the one that started something in you and he promises to finish that work, which means he will be with you at every nanosecond between the start and the finish of that work. He doesn't know how to leave you. You have an unabandoned future. So I want you to, I want you to take the idea you have for your life and I want you to take the collision of that idea with some other outcome. Either some outcome you've already lived through in your life, like this has not gone the way that I thought it would or should, this is not the idea I had for my life, and what collided with that, or I want you to get real crazy and I want you to bring your wildest fear fantasy to the idea that you have for your life to go. Take the romantic ideas you have, take the ideas that you have for your kids, the ideas for how you envision your life going and let those ideas literally run through some red light and have some horrific crash with some other way that your life may go or has gone. And I wanna make this visceral, I wanna make this real because it's visceral and real for Paul in a prison in Rome writing to these people that he loves. I want you to imagine a marriage that starts wild and romantic as a fire and then gets quenched by some affair. I want you to imagine your children growing up and walking away from you, or walking away from the faith. I want you to imagine the life of comfort you want, that life only being marked by pain and loss. I want you to imagine the satisfying career that you want to begin or have begun and it's only devoid of meaning and purpose. I want you to imagine the sin that you can't kick. I want you to imagine that sin taunting you for decades to come. And now ask this question. As your idea for your life collides, as it rides through the red lights, it gets T-boned by some other horrific idea. 
ask this question. Would Jesus Christ still call me his? Would Jesus still take me as his own? Would he still claim me? Would I still belong to Jesus? Would I still be accepted at his table and welcomed in his family? Verse six just answered it for you. Jesus Christ does not know how to leave you. And what's actually going on beneath the fear of that red light getting run and your idea of your life getting collided with from some other direction, the fear beneath all that is that something could happen where Jesus would disown you. Jesus would be so um, ashamed of you, he, he, you could do something or something could be done that would be too much for him to love you. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That is an asterisk sentence. It doesn't say, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, but see footnote that if you screw it up, that's not true. And it doesn't say that if pain or loss or death or divorce or addiction or cancer or something that you could imagine would be the worst possible thing to collide with your life that verse six stops being true. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. It means that even if you drain the tank of your life till empty, if you run through the red light, if it's your fault, if you're the reason why your life doesn't go the way that you think it should go, it means that there will still be one that won't leave you. Maybe better said by nobody other than Patty Griffin. But if you break down, I'll drive out and find you. And if you forget my love, I'll try to remind you. And I'll stay by you when it don't come easy. Let's pray. Jesus, we have run many red lights. And our lives can many weeks feel like just a constant collision of dashed hopes and dashed dreams of the way that we feel like our life should be going. So as you put us in the prison with Paul who had the confidence to write this verse, guide us as we lose our death grip on our idea of how our life should go, that we might gain an awareness of the Jesus who promises us an unabandoned future. We love you, Jesus. We long to love you more. We long to trust you more. Would you open our hands this morning and fill them with yourself, we pray in your name. Amen.